All right. Welcome back, everybody. Here we are once again, uh, although in this case, here we are for the first time uh, talking Survivor 42, uh, a very fun season thus far, as far as I am concerned. Although, Dom, if you disagree with that, I am certainly willing to fold my position immediately. So uh, how are you feeling about 42 to this point? I don't disagree. I, I think it has been fun so far. And yet... If I did disagree, I'm not sure I would be so invested in that idea that I would be like hammering at home and trying to be the edgelord. I have fully embraced my disengaged casual lifestyle now. I've been uh, sleeping through episodes on Wednesday nights, catching up on them on Thursday mornings, uh, trying to avoid spoilers, but like not going out of my way to avoid avoid spoilers. So, I mean, it's been a fun experience. I'm kind of liking my new uh, outlook on life. Let me, uh, if it's okay, expand on that quickly. Do you mean you're attempting to watch the episodes and falling asleep? Uh, I mean, in some cases, yes. That hasn't happened this season so far, but I am fully expecting it to happen at some point. Although when it does, I will not be aware, for I will be sleeping. So you you see the (laughs) dilemma there. Okay, well, I feel like we're getting off to uh, a start on the wrong foot here, because I'm sure people have, at least some people, have been out there wondering if we were even going to cover this season, since we hadn't done anything to this point. As far as I was aware, it was just a matter of life being much busier for both of us, uh, unfortunately, these last couple of weeks than I personally would have uh, wanted. I, I wish we had been able to be in here talking about those first couple of episodes in real time. But I, for one, have been watching live, enjoying it greatly. Uh, Certainly, I'm sure we will have some random criticisms to make along the way. But uh, I'm nervous now uh, because this is kind of my first... This is the first time it has crossed my mind that maybe you aren't enjoying this season so much. So am I right to be concerned there? (laughs) It's been a good season. I uh, I have some worries given that they seem to be taking the same template from 41 and translating that to 42. And with the explicit intention of we're going to blindside these people with exactly the same twist that we that we did last time. And uh, some of those twists had a mixed reception, uh, shall we say. So don't quite know what the future has in store yet. But uh, through three episodes so far, I, yeah, I, I'm liking the season. Okay. Uh, Again, we will definitely be diving into things more specifically uh, very shortly, but that is actually, I think, an interesting kind of place to start, is in talking to the various casuals on the street that I encounter, that has been something that they have mentioned to me as well, which is season 42 to this point, while they love the cast in general and are liking the episodes kind of in isolation... A very common piece of feedback uh, that I have heard is that it's very, very similar to Survivor 41. And I personally really liked Survivor 41. I liked plenty of the things that they tried out for the first time on Survivor 41. Obviously, strongly disliked uh, plenty of the things that they tried out for the first time on Survivor 41 as well. But I think I may even be getting to the point where... Thus far, it really does seem like it is essentially with, with, you know, we have the amulets uh, that haven't really been explored much to this point, but I'm sure they will later on that I think are a, a fun kind of cool new addition. But I would say I think even I may be getting to the point where seeing essentially the same twists in essentially the same order playing with essentially the same rule sets although there have been uh some tweaks that again i'm sure we'll get into is becoming a concern for me 
It's the same twist, but some of them are already playing out in different ways. So, for example, people are actually playing their shots, plural, in the dark here, uh, which is not something we ever really experienced on 41. I guess Sydney played it uh, one time at the merge, and then that that was basically it, and the, the twist may as well have not existed otherwise. Whereas here, it still may as well not have existed <laughs> insofar as... Uh, for, for both people who played it on their way out, their one vote was not going to move the needle in any direction, and also neither one of them actually hit their shot in the dark, and so that was essentially just wasted uh, screen time there. But it could happen, and it seems like uh, people are aware of that twist existence this time around in a way that uh, you could easily have forgot about last time. Um, so I think there's a lot of stuff where in 41 they just kind of threw everything at the kitchen sink and... and try to see what would stick around and basically all of it has stuck around but it's getting a, a second chance to make a first impression if that makes sense i definitely want to talk in a bit more detail about the shots plural in the dark there uh but let me quickly ask you if you had to make a call one direction or the other do you think we're going to see the hourglass again because i think that's going to be a big tipping point for me if we see that back yeah i i I worry that we are, and I really go back and forth on on that, because does Erica winning, in their mind, validate the entire concept of the hourglass, where if, if you buy into the idea that Erica was going to be voted out that night, and uh, you know she actually did change the course of history or whatever by uh, smashing the hourglass, then her going on to win, in one sense, is proof of, of exactly what that twist can do. On the other hand, I don't know if their reaction to it was different, where it's like, oh, well, this was kind of an aberration that should not have happened. And the fact that they under-edited, I would say, Erica so much, like maybe if they weren't happy with that final outcome, they traced that back to, well, this is the one twist that allowed that to happen. And so maybe they would be a bit more gun-shy on that in uh, the future. The other thing, too, is uh, so with 41 and 42 uh, filming when they did, and all of these same twists being reused, and the 42 contestants not really getting to see what happened in uh, 41. There's no chance for any public feedback about these twists to make its way to Jeff and to production. That being said, even if there were that time, I don't know if that would make any difference. I think if if recent trends are anything to go by, if anything, Jeff would get even more stubborn and just double down on how amazing this twist was in the face of such unanimous feedback that it's such a terrible idea. We have certainly seen that sort of thing out of Jeff in the past, and I'm, I'm kind of of two minds about the repetitiveness, for lack of a better word, because I, I don't think it's as explicitly negative as it may seem like I'm feeling at this point. Uh, I do, on one hand, definitely understand the impulse as the producer's and kind of like the impulse as the producers to say, okay, we saw a bunch of new things play out in Survivor 41, and we're never going to have another opportunity to try them again on kind of fresh sets of eyes, uh, so to speak, unless we do it right away in Survivor 42. And I'm a fan of them saying, okay, we don't need to read so much into this one iteration of this twist and take it as gospel that that's how it's going to be. Every time I, I am a fan of them saying, let's give this another shot and see if we get uh, a, a different sort of result there with a new group. I, 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 personally, I'm fine just going off vibes for all of these twists. <laughs> I, I don't need to have 
enough seasons with the hourglass twist to get a proper scientific sample in place or, or whatever. Just don't, don't need to do any of that. We can uh, we, we can shortcut to the conclusion there and let our, our first impressions do the work. Uh, certainly, yes. Uh, there, there, there definitely is that argument to be made as well. And on the other hand, uh, much like the casuals on the street that I talk to every so often, I certainly see it from the perspective of I'm excited for a new season of Survivor, but as far as the audience may be concerned, this is potentially the worst time to be redoing every single thing you just did last season. It's also weird in this context of this is a fresh start. You you drop the four, you keep the one or keep the two now. And yet you still have so many contestants on each season, not only talking about how big of a super fan they are, but making explicit references to specific survivor seasons in the past which were meant to just nod along with and understand and that's just it's taken for granted that we're we're meant to follow along with that uh so i mean i loved uh, as everyone else did marianne saying that she just missed six episodes of, of token genes which really made me think which six episodes right did you just uh join the season at the merge and try and piece it together from there were you so were you so heartbroken by I guess, like Joe Daddle getting medevaced or something. You just quit the season there and then. I have a lot more follow-up questions about uh, all of that. But like when she's saying that or you know, Daniel's talking about how much of a super-duper fan he is, which uh, it, it sounds like what we saw on screen so far does not even convey the full extent of that. Like he was doing some like uh, Adam Klein-esque, Cochran-esque uh, stuff when he was in law school, like hosting themed Survivor Nights and, and God knows what, uh, which I, I guess... The two of them are decent precedent to to have in your back pocket there, uh, but I, I fear that uh, Daniel is maybe on the Colkin 1.0 trajectory <laughs> rather than the the, the 2.0. Um, but it, it is just a, a contrast that keeps coming up, where like you have these people who are so heavily invested in Survivor as it used to be, whether or not that nostalgia is is based on much, and then the show itself just just denying that it even has that history and, and pretending that era didn't exist. Well, I think they've been a lot more willing in recent seasons to go way, way more kind of meta and self-referential than they were for at least the first 15 years, if not beyond that. I do think the Cochran's and Adams Klein of the world, to use the correct pluralization again, uh, did manage to slip in plenty of shout outs and references to older seasons that ended up making air and they were certainly not alone in being able to do that. But this season we've certainly had Daniel among many others, Marianne with the token genes thing. Uh, it seems like the majority, if not like overwhelming majority of people in this cast are at least bordering on like survivor super fan status. Uh, and Last season, of course, we had JD making air, doing like ream impressions and woo impressions. And I think the show not only as far as like the TV presentation is concerned is willing to go that route a lot harder than they ever were. And more than I ever thought they would they would be willing to go for the first couple of decades that Survivor was on air. But furthermore, I think just the makeup of these last couple of casts really speaks to their willingness to hammer that angle. Like Erica hammered the hourglass uh, pretty hard there, Dom, where hey, uh... yeah, nailed it. Uh, it seems to me like 
not only obviously along the lines of just cast diversity, but casting in general, it seems like is leaning almost fully into the survivor kind of super fan archetype much more than they ever did. The Cochran's and Adams were kind of outliers. And now it seems like that's become the new normal. Do you think that's a, a good thing for the show? Well, my takeaway from how JD was portrayed last season was the official editorial stance was this is all a bit cringe. Why is this guy uh, putting his foot in his mouth so often? And if he could just act normal, then he would be more successful. He would actually get to live out his dream of being the successful Survivor Superfan instead of just being a, another uh, Jacob Derwin, like another JD. Um, and, you know, you, you know, if you take a just normal, well-adjusted person and you graft on some Survivor fandom, great. I mean, that's, that's the recipe for success. But if your entire personality is being a Survivor Superfan, then uh, don't, don't feel optimistic about how well the season's going to go for you. And I feel like that has... Uh, Looking like it's going to be borne out this season, too, if early indications are anything to go by. I think you may be on to something there, but I would say, in general, I am a big proponent of casting people who not even are necessarily good at Survivor or, like, game bots or anything even close to along those lines. I have always just really wanted casts entirely full of people who care about winning and care about being there and doing their best, even if it's not going to go that well for them, as opposed to tons of the seasons that we had to sit through, uh, including many that we podcasted about week after week after week that were chock full of Mactors who were recruited for the show had never really seen an episode to speak of or your Keith Nail kind of Rick Nelson guys who were there mostly because they liked the camping element of Survivor and weren't too caught up in pretty much anything that happened uh, in game terms. I think there are probably going to be some rough edges to smooth out along the way, but I'm a big, big fan of what they're doing in pretty much every conceivable capacity as far as the more modern casting of the show is concerned. Uh, and yeah, I, I know we will absolutely talk more about all of these players in more specific terms. Uh, but I think, Dom, since we have so much to catch up on here through these first three weeks, uh, let's talk about some of the major kind of game-related dynamics, and then near the end of the podcast, I think it would be prudent uh, to lock in some person-specific takes in the form of a must-lose draft, uh, and we can clean up the individual stuff as we go through that. But uh, since it has already come up already, let's begin with what we have seen this season as far as the shot in the dark is concerned. Uh, we ended up with both Zach and Mariah going for it on their way out obviously didn't end up working for either of them but as you uh mentioned already we only saw it once on season 41 it was when sydney was eliminated and it didn't really end up making much of a difference and obviously this time around has not yet made much of a difference to this point other than we are now seeing it played more regularly do you have a theory about why the shot in the dark is becoming more tempting this season. 
I I really don't, other than it's been there for like 1.25 seasons now, and we just don't really have enough examples of people needing to consider it, I, I suppose. I think one thing is that in the, I guess, the OOR-dominated uh, pre-merge of 41, a lot of people did not know that they were on the way out at the time that they were. And so, um, you know, if JD knew that he was going home that night, would he have played the shot in the dark? Well, maybe, but you do have to get to that first step for that to even uh, become a question. And then you, I think you had some other people, if my memory serves me right, who effectively knew they were in danger but weren't certain about it, and they thought that playing the shot in the dark, if uh, they weren't actually going home, would be like a a show of lack of faith in the people who they were relying on to keep them. And so they decided to just uh, hold that and hope for the best. Um, so I think it may just be an aberration, if anything, that both of the people who went home first on this season like knew they were on the outs and decided this was the best way to address that rather than just uh, anything else. I am fully on board with that. I was listening to the RHAP coverage over these last couple of weeks, and I know it had been at least tossed around the idea that potentially it was explained better to them this time as opposed to season 41. And I really think it just comes down to Zach and Mariah, as far as I can tell, both just kind of knew that they were toast unless they hit the shot in the dark. And I actually, by the way, liked that Zach added that kind of caveat before playing his of like, well, whatever my current odds of being safe are, why wouldn't I want to increase those by 16 ish percent? We can check in with Voce on the actual math there, but I agree with you, which is uh, with your general kind of sentiment there of the shot in the dark, I think in both 41 and 42, and we'll see if the rules are adjusted in the future, is just kind of in a spot where it's so difficult to justify playing it unless you are very, very confident that you're going to be the one eliminated unless you pull the right parchment there, where when you both have to give up your vote, and as you alluded to, I think pretty crucially, make it clear to the people that you're hoping are on your side that you don't have full faith in them in the form of announcing that, hey, I've played my shot in the dark. That is just not a very tempting proposition. And we talked about this last season, and I'm going to double down on it here. And I cannot believe I am the person making the case for this uh, as someone who has pretty loudly been strongly against many of the twists over the last decade or so uh, that kind of radically altered the game. But I think the shot in the dark as it's currently constructed is just not a tempting enough proposition for people to go for it in any situation other than I feel like I'm totally screwed. So it's kind of a free roll here. Uh, I, I remain. Yeah, I, I, I see where you're going here, I think, but to, to me, this was, I think the debate we had in 41 too is, it seems to me almost impossible to to square that circle of how you calibrate this twist so that you can play it when you don't have to, when it's a, an option rather than just a, a last-ditch Hail Mary. Um, and for for that to come up often enough without coming up so often that 
it just it undermines the entire voting system and the game of Survivor just becomes this roulette wheel of souls. So I don't think it would necessarily become a roulette wheel if you made the odds better on hitting it or got rid of the you lose your vote penalty. I think that is the issue is you're getting such a bad price on playing the shot in the dark that it's it's going to be a massive net negative potentially massive at least net negative anytime you even go for it and then when your odds of hitting it are as low as one in six it makes it very very difficult to justify actually implementing this twist that i have to imagine they were hoping more people would uh have played in season 41 and we'll see what becomes of the frequency with which it is played in 42 but i remain pretty staunchly on the side of if we're going to have the shot in the dark, which I personally don't even think is a bad thing or like turns survivor into a roulette wheel. I continue to believe that the odds should be better than one in six. And I would be totally fine with it. If it was just free to play one time per everyone gets one per season doesn't cost you your vote you have whatever a one in four chance and that makes it a lot more tempting if there's a night where you just kind of get weird vibes for whatever reason uh to to go for it and i don't think that would turn survivor into a roulette wheel i don't think we would see people playing it week after week after week and again everyone only gets uh one chance at it over the course of an entire season so i don't think it would be like an overwhelming kind of thing but as it is currently constructed, I don't know how it's going to change away from being something that people only really play when they feel like they have no alternative. That does lead to the question of, is losing your vote actually a significant penalty? Because that does seem to be the topic of the hour. And so that may be a good segue to, to get into that. I Absolutely. Good. Very professionally segued there, Dom. Yeah, I, I think the idea of losing votes and gaining votes... Again, I, I I feel kind of like out of my own body saying this, considering how much over the years we've kind of ranted about these radically game-altering twists. But Survivor is frankly just like such a straightforward kind of numbers game that I'm personally fine with it. And I could easily see many, many timelines where people even more regularly than it is happening now, gaining and losing votes becomes a major part of just the future of the franchise there. But unlike the shot in the dark, which I think is kind of a static situation where you play it if you know you're totally screwed and otherwise it's almost certainly not worth the risk. The reason I'm fine with uh, gaining and losing votes and making decisions based on either of those propositions becoming uh, a bigger piece of just survivor gameplay in general is because I think it is so heavily situational. Uh, So in this week's illustration, I think Chanel was getting like a horrible price on the, on the prospect of losing her vote, knowing what I believe she knew at the time that she was making that decision. But there are many, many other situations where going to ship wheel Island and risking your vote can be more or less a free roll. It doesn't really matter if you end up losing your vote that round. Uh, So like in a hypothetical world, if Mike just had never found the beware advantage before this vote and he was able to vote himself, I think that 
Chanel's decision would have basically been kind of a free roll. Whether she loses her vote or has her vote at this first tribal council becomes almost irrelevant if uh, the rest of her alliance is going to have a three vote to two vote majority either way. But when you know that that's not the case, it becomes catastrophic, as we will go on to see, to risk your vote in this situation. So I, I, I think that's my issue with it, ultimately, is that if you can't rely on gaining an extra vote or losing your, your first vote being a big difference maker, then you're essentially consigning a lot of the twists that revolve around that to being irrelevant most of the time. So you look back at 41, there were like votes being gained and lost left and right. And ultimately, it never really amounted to anything. Um, you look at the, the pre-merge game, right, where the people who got extra votes were so safe that they never had to use them. The people who uh, lost their vote uh, were either in in the actual majority or were just like being kept around for long enough that uh, they were either safe and one vote wasn't going to make a difference or the entire rest of the tribe was going to vote them out. And again, one vote was not going to make a difference. And I think that even on this specific setup that they have, where we mentioned the big difference between losing your vote on a 10-person tribe versus a 6-person tribe, for example, I, so much is either consciously or unconsciously tailored to maximize the risk of what happens if you lose your vote. And even then, it takes this perfect storm of so many things aligning for any of that to actually come to fruition. And so, yeah, what we got this week was, I, I would say, a really fun, really great Survivor episode. And the the things that went into making it fun and great could not be replicated in the average episode of Survivor. And that, so this is a unique opportunity that you only really get under these circumstances. At the same time, how many, you know, how often can you expect that to happen? And if, uh, you know, one out of 10 times, one out of 15 times, there's a vote lost. It makes a difference. Like, what, what is the hit rate that you need there in order for the juice to be worth the squeeze? And I do believe that history would probably back up your stance there where, you know, people gaining extra votes has been going on for many, many, many years at this point. And I know there was some semi-recent i want to say example of like oh hey someone gaining an extra vote finally made a difference uh in a tribal council from a few seasons ago i wish i remembered the specifics but sadly i don't uh hopefully someone out there can loop me in and we can maybe uh update this the next time we're in here with the actual instance where it did matter but i think even setting aside how likely it is to make a tangible difference in the way like the vote result ends up going much like the shot in the dark while it's going to actually like swing the outcome very infrequently the threat that it poses to the people trying to make plans i think is the real value in it i i guess i i mean so th this comes back to the the big picture debate that we've been having for a while now right of once you throw the most basic rules up in the air, well, then you're just incentivizing people to not take any actual big risks and not the kind of uh, not, not the kind of risk that Chanel was talking about, where like you risking your one vote in episode, episode three on Shipwheel Island. Like this is a game where you have to take risks and make big moves. And this is just one more example of that. I mean, an actual big risk. I mean, like, uh, you know, Tony uh, flipping to vote out Sophie, right? Or some of these moves where, 
you really are going out on a limb to try and pull them off. And if they do, that might be a million dollar move right there. And if it fails, maybe you just lit a million dollars on fire. Like that kind of stuff, which you really do remember, I think is maybe not explicitly harmed some of the time, but like, yeah, if you can't rely on just the basic rules of the game being in place, then yeah, you're going to go with the, the safe majority instead. And we are not going to understand the full scale of that kind of conservative thinking that these twists encourage now, where like there are so many moves which are just like never even uh, get to be born because the people who would want to make them know that it's just kind of a non-starter there. Right, and that is certainly uh, a fair and perhaps overwhelming counterpoint of it becomes much more difficult to truly shake the game up as far as balance of power is concerned long term uh, when all of these kind of chaos tokens are in play and everyone knows that i like i think as we saw this week there is much greater opportunity for like an isolated instance or isolated incident heard it both ways of someone being able to win the day because certain advantages were played correctly but it doesn't do a ton for their long-term position. Although in, in this case, that that may be uh, a bit of an outlier. I'm sure we'll get to that momentarily, but you are certainly uh, correct in, I think the analysis that every player in the game knowing, well, I could conceivably flip on my Alliance or flip on some person who thinks they're a close ally of mine and make this major kind of game move. But I know that we're playing in the modern era of Survivor, and as much as I would like to do that, there's always such a high chance at every single tribal council that some magic power could just fall out of the sky that the upside of making that big move is greatly diminished. Uh, And again, I'll return to the idea of just like what kind of price people are being laid on making these kind of game altering decisions. It's going to decrease pretty substantially when there's such a high risk of as badly as you may want to shake the game up long term and have this incredible TV moment and then a much more exciting game going forward. I fully understand why people in the modern era are a bit more inclined uh, or at least could conceivably talk themselves into being more inclined to take the super conservative route just to make sure that nothing goes totally haywire. They don't get the result that they want and they're totally exposed because of some twist they have never seen before and had no reason to know was in the game or think that they ever had to guard against. So I'm sure this will continue to be uh, a pretty regular talking point, both on this season and probably in the future as well, Dom. Uh, But let's dive into some actual talking points from this specific season here. Uh, And let's start, I think, at this most recent tribal council. I'm sure we're going to be hopping around all over the place, but this is... uh, the big news of the week, other than uh, to date this podcast, Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at uh, the Oscars there last night. But let's get into everything that we saw go down at this tragic, as far as I'm concerned, Jenny elimination here in episode three. Dom, uh, long story short, we're going to have Chanel lose her vote over on Shipwheel Island. We, of course, have Mike 
uh, having already lost his vote because of the beware advantage. And so we are left with just Hi and Lydia up against Daniel and who, oh my God, I'm of course immediate. Oh, it was uh, that immediately. It was Daniel and Jenny, obviously. Uh, and then only Daniel able to vote against high in the revote, at which point we are now at a deadlock and the negotiations need to begin. Uh, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time going through Daniel uh, potentially kind of giving it away right off the bat. But I'm curious if you had a better plan. Uh, I think it's easy to see why Daniel's plan to potentially try to save Jenny there didn't work. If you're in Daniel's shoes, Dom, have you thought at all about what he could have done differently? I, I guess vote out Jenny the first time. If uh, This is uh, the, the thing I keep coming back to. Of If Daniel genuinely was a swing vote, if he felt like he has this one group over here and this other group over here, and it's just him and Chanel deciding who's going to go home, then unless you have a very, very strong preference for uh, one or the other, then just the, the, the maths of the situation suggests that you just kind of take the safe route and vote out Jenny, right? Like, I, I guess that he and Mike have this specific personal relationship and voting out Jenny and blindsiding him is going to rupture that. But this is the downside of being a swing vote that we shouldn't ever really overlook, which is that if you play it badly, then you end up making every single person mad at you. And Daniel actually took that one step further than the normal because sometimes you have this, this group of swing votes that's in the middle and they have to decide which group of people are we pissing off? And sometimes it's just going to be all of them. And that's unavoidable. Daniel also managed to turn the other person in that swing vote group against him at the same time. It's a truly a magnificent feat of uh, survivor strategy there, um, which was amazing TV. And just watching the, like the rise and then fall and then possibly fall even further of Daniel's going to be like a great storyline over the next few episodes, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I guess that, the way they set it up where Daniel's in the middle, if you're in the middle, then it seems like you avoid the risk and vote out Jenny, right? So it seemed like that was, he wanted to side with the, the older group there. And then, I, I, I don't know, it seemed reasonable to me for him to expect that if we go to High and Lydia and say, let's just split the vote, um, then assuming Chanel is credible in saying that she didn't risk her own vote, then yeah, you've got the four votes, you split them two to two, uh, easy, done and dusted, right? Um, and actually, I think it's easier than maybe it could be sometimes because it feels very much like the, if you're trying to set up a split vote, whether it's real or fake or whatever, the, the thing that people always default to is, okay, well, if we have an equal number of men and women, we just have, okay, men vote for this person, women vote for this person. And this time, it just so happens, conveniently, that High and Lydia would be on opposite sides of that split. So yeah, you you go for the default option, and that leads to this 1v1 split, uh, one vote on Mike, one vote on Jenny, your two votes can flip over, and yeah, easy easy game. But <laughs> uh, you know, when somehow you have two separate votes being lost, and th th this goes back to my point of how hard it is for this to actually lead to something if just one of those votes had been in jeopardy. Like if Chanel never goes to, the, to go to the island. If Mike never loses his vote, if either one of those things doesn't happen, then I think this vote still seems pretty straightforward, right? And instead, it took this weird confluence of events for Jenny to actually be in danger, which 
she is well aware of. And in her exit interview, which will I, I do want to come back to when we have a moment, she has some, some very strong words to say about that. Um, it really felt like, you know, like Daniel should never have been in a spot where he had to play this hand. And yet when he got this hand to play, he really just uh, punted it all away. Right. And I do agree that like on paper for Daniel and Chanel and to their credit, they seem to realize this very quickly. Uh, it could have been a, a straightforward ish uh, <laughs> as far as two one one votes go kind of elimination there where they are able to split up high and Lydia. I think it really comes down to their execution seemed a bit lacking to such an extent that high was incredibly sketched out by it. Uh, and at least of the TV episode is to believed to be believed made kind of a soul read there uh, and went rogue and really hammered down on, okay, Lydia is clearly the only person I can have any real degree of faith in here going forward. But even after you see the initial votes come in and you're Daniel and you know, okay, it's just going to be me and high who are about to vote on this revote. And I really don't want to go to rocks. I'm tempted to give him a bit more of a pass than I feel like I have seen from most others. Uh, and we'll fully acknowledge that you're probably right, that if you're just going to flip and do whatever it takes to avoid rocks, if it comes back deadlocked, then you're probably better off just flipping on the revote in the first place. But I will say there's at least some non-zero chance that High doesn't want to go to Rocks either, and he'll flip uh, on the revote. So from that perspective, I'm not going to drag Daniel for. Well, when I think it's easier for High to stand his ground when Daniel opens the whole proceedings by saying, "My, my utmost priority is I don't want to go to Rocks." No, no, no. I'm talking um... before we're even at that point. I'm saying on because I agree with you. In theory, if you know. High is not flipping on the revote and totally willing to go to rocks, then you yourself probably have a pretty clear decision to just flip on the revote yourself and avoid the whole rock discussion in the first place. But I do want to at least acknowledge the possibility that Daniel was saying to himself, worst case scenario is I have to flip once rocks become a very real prospect but at least there's some chance in his mind that maybe high will flip his actual vote and we won't even have to get to the rocks conversation in the first place there uh but right well i I think maybe one thing that goes into that is high not knowing where the votes were right like if you 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 go up to vote you think there's going to be six people there maybe it's a four to two split some way or whatever and then the first vote is revealed, and you don't even know that it's the first vote. You just think it's the vote because it's tribal council. Um, and then only four votes are read, and then suddenly you're going to a tie, and there's no time to talk through anything either with Daniel or with Lydia or whatever. Uh, I just have to go up there and vote again. Well, now it's pretty easy for him to just cast the same vote again, I think, and just wait to see what happens. It's, it's almost like not knowing what the rules are that are in place – makes it easier to just do the same thing you did and hope for some new information to present itself. Uh, and I so, totally agree. I, I don't think High even has much of a decision there based on the vibes that he's been getting. Let's get into one of the weird uh, loopholes around the rules, which 
I, I don't know how this ever could have come up under any other circumstances, but basically we get into the spot where we have a tie and then another tie on the revote, which normally means either the group has to come to a unanimous agreement or the people who receive votes are taken out of that altogether and everyone else ends up drawing rocks. And normally the, 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 the that's kind of a weird setup in and of itself, but it, it has a kind of internal logic to it, right? Here, though, we have this odd wrinkle of there are two people who didn't even cast votes in the first place here. And yet you now, especially on a tribe that has six people to start with, how, how you answer this question really has a big impact on how things might play out. You, you have to uh, rule on this issue of are these people still eligible to draw rocks, even though they don't get to take part or have an official voice in uh, that unanimous consensus that needs to form to to avoid that happening so i was paying close attention as this was going on to what the ruling would be and i was vigorously nodding along with jeff at every point which is a rare occurrence for me but i think they nailed the ruling here of hi and daniel are the only people whose opinions are going to matter when it comes to whether or not we are going to rocks. But if we do go to rocks, Mike and Chanel, you're drawing too. Like this is you, you, the fact that you lost your vote does not make you safe from yes, the rock. That, draw. I, I am fully, I was enthusiastic uh, and thrilled to see that they made the ruling that they did. Yeah. It is meant to be a downside. You should right. get an exemption in this weird edge case because you lost your vote <laughs> in the, in, in the original timeline. Yeah. Uh, if they ruled it the other way, uh, I don't think that would be like unfair or anything. I do. I, I, I would but... be outraged right now if they had ruled it any other oh, way. Oh, I, I bet you would. Yeah. You, you would have, uh, you would be spitting fire out here, but, um, yeah, I, I do agree with how they handled it. And as a result, there must be this real sense of, helplessness right especially if uh you know if you're if you're mike or if you're chanel of like you just gave up any agency you had over the vote and so much of the time that wouldn't even matter and that's why you feel happy taking that risk in the first place and yet this is the one time where you you wish you had you wish you had to vote back uh more than anything well to be i i also like that mike uh and chanel you're certainly still allowed to talk and try to influence the other two who actually have uh, meaningful opinions here uh, in, in purely like vote terms as we're having this whole rock deliberation. And I think that's totally legit. The same way that back at camp, you've lost your vote. You're still willing. You're still able to influence people as best you can and hope that they make the decision that you would like to see them make. But no, I was a big, big fan uh, and wanted to give some major kudos to the producers for, as far as I am concerned, nailing the rulings here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, and for, uh, One other uh, thing, uh, sorry, just before I forget, uh, <laughs> unless you have something uh, no, tightly I, related to that. No, no, go for it. I, the, the one other thing I wanted to say, uh, as far as Daniel... And whether or not he should flip on the revote or uh, things along those lines. I did wonder if there's also a defensible, at least, case that can be made to the idea that 
had he handled it differently once it came time to start talking about rocks, that might be seen as a more defensible point at which to flip than just flipping on the revote. And I think this, at least conceivably, could have been along the lines that Daniel was thinking. Uh, and again, I am not at all trying to defend coming right out and saying, OK, above all, I'm definitely not going to rocks. I think that is not the way to do it. But in theory... I think it could at least potentially be viewed as more of a betrayal to flip on just the initial revote than to flip once the prospect of sticking your own hand into a bag of rocks is blatantly on the table. And if you don't flip, that's what's going to happen next. I think like at least I could see it being the case that in Daniel's mind, once we get to the point of okay, we have to have this discussion and then we have to figure out whether or not we're drawing rocks, that potentially gives him more of an opportunity to explain himself uh, to the group before he makes his decision of why he's doing what he's doing and at least conceivably in their minds makes it more defensible to not, if you don't flip, you're going to stick your hand in a bag of rocks five minutes from now. And I, the third party who hasn't been able to vote or who was involved in the tie have an easier time understanding that than at least potentially someone who just flips on the revote and doesn't even give high an opportunity to potentially flip or fold on the rock discussion. I, I do think there was at least possibly something to the idea of Daniel actively wanting this kind of open forum to both defend his own decision to flip. And also it seems like kind of throw Chanel under the bus as best he could uh, in that time as well. Yeah. The way that she ended up losing her vote is worth getting into as well. Cause the way it was set up for us is that she and Omar, who I, I will say we haven't, had the chance to say much about so far, but his emu shirt is the best fashion item on Survivor in years at this point. I, I, I'm fully all in on it. Um, the, the two of them get to the island, and she basically uh, presents it as, I, I cannot risk losing my vote. And so I, Omar makes the, the perfectly natural conclusion of that, of, okay, well, she is trying to suggest to me that I can take the extra vote, she gets to go back with her case, we both win, right? And maybe there's a building block there uh, that, you know, there's a relationship down the line we can build on. Great. Instead, like, her saying that, I think, makes him more likely to risk his vote, even if he was maybe on the fence about that before. And so when she risks her own vote, she's just sabotaging both of them for no, no apparent gain. And again, normally, you go back to your camp with your tail between your legs, you... You explain what happened to your ally, but it's okay because our four to two majority instead of our five to two majority, that's fine. Who even cares? Well, now you actually do have to care. And this is the one time where that becomes an issue. And it's an issue that you you had to know about going in. Like when Chanel gets on the boat to go to the island, you have to be thinking this is a possibility already. Um, and so it's almost like, if you do this by accident, if you, you get greedy, you, you put your hand in the cookie jar, but their hand is in it too, you get burned, you lose your vote, That it makes sense how you would end up there. But when she knows f full well what risk she's taking here and then explains that risk to Omer and then or <laughs> makes it more likely that that risk falls back on her and then just does it anyway because 
I, I need to make a I need to make a move. I need to take a risk. It, it feels very much like, uh, you know, when you're you're writing your first CV, your first resume, and you kind of pad it out with every like minor extracurricular thing you did in high school, and then okay, at the time that makes sense, but if you're at the stage where at the end game, right, which you know day 39 or 26 now. If that one thing is still pride of place on your resume, then something has gone wrong somewhere. No one cares about it at that point. Um, and yeah, I mean, the idea of you have to take risks to win Survivor, therefore every single risk by definition is a good idea. At that point, isn't just doing that the safe maneuver rather than the risky one of just t- taking whatever seems more overtly dangerous and not paying attention to the consequences? I, I have many, many questions about Chanel's line of thinking uh, over the entire course of this round here, but in particular about what really went on in that conversation with Omer. But because we see a confessional from him about like, oh, you know, Chanel made it clear as day that there's no circumstance under which she can really afford to lose her vote tonight it seemed like kind of a freebie to me that I'll risk my vote. I'll get that extra vote going forward. Mission accomplished here on Shipwheel Island. And Chanel and I will have a great bond if circumstances ever align such that we're on the same tribe, either post-swap or post-merge, which I, at this point, as Omer, am really hoping for because I don't know yet that I've lost my vote and that I have no... uh, And that, like, Chanel may be someone that I'm going to uh, have a hard time trusting in the future. Like if I'm Omer, even like the morning after this non rock draw has just gone down, he doesn't know that yet. He just still doesn't know that he's lost his vote. And I'm guessing outside of the people on his own tribe, he's still probably thinking that Chanel is one of the people he would most like to uh, be involved with going forward. So I don't want to go too uh, conspiracy theorist here, but like I really am going to be curious to find out whenever we do get the opportunity to find out what the hell happened that caused Chanel to end up risking her vote. I think the TV presentation was she got the vibe that, Hey, maybe Omer's not going to risk his vote and I can pick up an extra one here if uh, that ends up being the case. But again, like she very, very clearly recognizes how much downside there is in taking that course of action. And I would not be floored if we find out that there was some encouragement to make the risky mm. play. That, that like, yeah, I, I, I think even if there was no one saying anything to her directly, I think it's not necessarily wrong uh, for players out there on these new seasons of Survivor to kind of default to the line of thinking of obviously they put this in here because they want someone to do it and I want to be the big hero of the story and uh, person who takes my own fate into my own hands and goes big or goes home because this is a show about big moves and I need stuff for my resume and that's how you win. I really think people may be kind of like drunk with that notion at this point. Mm. Yeah. I, uh, so I had a good impression of Chanel from the first two episodes. And even when she got back, 
uh, I don't remember who it was, but someone was saying that usually she's the one who is you know, cool, calm and collected. And this is the first time that she seemed frazzled to any real uh, degree. So I I was going to give her like the benefit of the doubt on this one. And it does seem like there's some missing link there, which uh, will have to be filled in uh, after the fact. Speaking of that, though, this might be a good time to get into uh, Jenny's thoughts on this whole situation yes. in her press uh, post-mortems here, because uh, there's this one choice quote, which I think really sums up a lot of people's objections to just the direction of the show in its uh, in its recent years, and from someone who is uh, on the, the wrong end of that in, in the worst way possible. So here's the quote. It felt like a game of roulette, to be totally honest. You throw all of these advantages, and not really advantages, disadvantages at us, and it's a total crapshoot. People always say you have to play as well as you can with the cards that are dealt to you. Well, yeah, but what if you're dealt cards and with every single new move, your cards are taken away and constantly reshuffled and redealt so your placement can never have a solid foundation? Um, and that, that quote is completely on the money. Uh, as, other, I as mean, she, I she mixes several gambling metaphors there, but other than that, yes. Well, okay. I, for the vast majority of the, the viewing public, that, that metaphor is uh, completely uh, on the money. You could argue, I guess, if you wanted to be cynical about it, that like this has happened enough recently that this is like the show you're signing up for, right? Like you, you are not signing up for, uh, you know, whatever you date the classic era of Survivor as those first however many seasons back in the day. Like this is this is not that. This is a new game show, effectively, with some of the legacy Survivor branding and. That's what you're signing up for. I do think, though, that 41 and 42 are really dialing that up even a few more notches further. And once again, uh, as Jeff likes to remind us, these players did not get to see 41. They don't actually know the full extent of what they're signing up for here. And they're they're learning that just at the point where it hits them, you know, with the force of a truck. So I agree that it has obviously become uh, a lot higher variance than Survivor ever was back in the day and as regular listeners know that has been a point of contention for particularly me but i think for both of us and we're certainly not alone uh over a, a very extended period of time at this point which is survivor in its kind of pure basic form is just such a simple and predictable game and thus tv product that i don't really think the producers had much of a choice but to find new ways to kind of shake things up and diminish that being the case. Uh, and there are many instances that I think have gone well, like the Hidden Immunity Idol, and many, <laughs> many more uh, that I think were kind of swings and misses. And they're clearly of the opinion, I think, at this point that they're just – throwing a bunch of shit at the wall, seeing what sticks. Hopefully we can find the next hidden immunity idol esque sort of thing that makes the game more interesting in a more fair ish and balanced ish kind of way. Uh, I certainly understand where Jenny is coming from and I'm positive. I would have I, like, I would take no pleasure in trying to work my way through that. If I were out there playing the game myself and it would sting Quite a bit. If I went from a four to two advantage within my tribe to being eliminated because of just these random, again, chaos uh, elements 
that got thrown in just because Survivor's been on the air for a really long time. However, as you flagged up, this is nothing new. This this has been the case for a long, long time. And because of that, I have a bit less sympathy for Jenny, who, again, I really, really like Jenny and was heartbroken to see her be uh, like the victim in this situation. But you know what you're signing up for when you go out on Survivor in modern times, that like this sort of thing is not only liable to happen, this is going to happen to many people over the course of the season. And the thing that I really object to much more so than, okay, this is becoming more of a roulette wheel and it's going to come up red or black, but it spiked the green zero. And so you're, game is over at least you went in knowing that the green zero was a possibility the the problem that i generally have with survivor twists are like for instance the hourglass last season or the ben drebergen surprise final four fire making challenge out of thin air is when the twist is something where it's essentially like when you're playing roulette or you're shooting craps, you go in knowing that you're gambling. And I would say that is the case for anyone signing up for Survivor in the modern era. What I am going to object to at this point in time, unlike those things, which I think are just a an impossible reality to ignore. I think that's just part of the way the show works now. What I am not down with and will never be down with is the Hourglass or the Heroes, Healers, Hustlers thing where it's essentially – We've played this whole hand of poker out. We get to showdown, and now that we see who has what, we've decided to change it so that two pair beats a flush on this hand only, and you had no way of knowing that, but now you're just kind of screwed if you're the person who had the flush. Like, that, I think, is totally out of bounds and will always well, be, be out of bounds for me. Hopefully, the next episode that we record, we'll, we will not have an opportunity to revisit that uh, that analysis. I hope so as well. But uh, yes, either way, uh, certainly, I, I want to be clear. I totally understand how devastating that must be to be the kind of Jenny person in this situation. But she is certainly not the first and will certainly not be the last to kind of have her survivor game undone along lines perhaps not identical to these, but certainly very similar uh, to the ones that she found herself in here while fully acknowledging that it took virtually every single thing breaking wrong for Jenny to be the one to be eliminated here. That's just how survivor works in modern times. All right, Tom. So I think we have uh, belabored that point adequately. Let's move on to a couple other things that we have seen this season. Uh, Let's go to, the return of the three-way idols. Uh, thus far, we have seen them fall into the hands of Mike and Mary Ann, still looking for uh, someone over on the blue team to pick that up. What are your thoughts on three-way idols 2.0 to this point? I'm surprised by how optional this whole process seems to be, because... Uh, we saw you know Mike looking over the wording of the the Barrera advantage and then um you know we had a uh, Marianne finding her part too and then we get to the challenge and Marianne uh, is very kind of gamely uttering her phrase and 
she's almost in the same like Xander position from last season, right? Where like you could you could possibly imagine them just saying that if they're off on one at any given challenge. And so the, the first time at least it doesn't uh get you asking any questions. Um but it seemed like uh I don't know if there was some like weird editing or timing issue here or whatever, but uh Mike and Daniel it seemed like had an opportunity uh you know what one of them could have said the phrase and they didn't and it didn't really feel like that was a choice that was offered on 41 so i'm not sure what was going on there i uh listened to evie on rhap last week and apparently it was the case that on 41 at least for the first time if not every single challenge xander did not have a choice and he had to say the phrase and uh i would imagine if it was the case for xander that was probably the case for everyone on 41 as well but i certainly remember when we were in here talking about the week whatever it was after brad had been voted out and the beware advantage was re-hidden and we had the shan ricard and uh genie scene of them like refinding it and trying to figure out what to do we came in here and i don't even remember if you agreed or disagreed with me but i was a strong advocate for if i'm shannon ricard here this is a great situation because we can take the beware advantage and not say it and essentially ensure that the idols will not be activated on the other teams. And that is like such a massive win as far as I was concerned in the moment. And I was like legit disappointed to see that they didn't go that route. I think when this option is on the table, which again, to be fair, to be fair, is not necessarily the case for uh, Shannon Ricard in that moment. I love that. I think it was specifically Daniel who voiced this idea in the first place of, okay best case scenario here is we don't say the phrase i think there's frankly way more power in making sure that there are not multiple idols active on enemy camps at this point uh you know enemy may be too bold of a term but i love this impulse to just deliberately not say the phrase and it now gets a bit dicier uh if they feel really good about Daniel being back on their side. And I guess they, at this point is just Mike and Chanel. Even then uh, it's still now a different situation where Mike's vote and act like activating the idol is almost secondary to reactivating Mike's ability to vote in the timelines where they end up back at another vote anytime soon. Uh, so this may take kind of a sudden turn now that his vote is potentially so vital there but i love the decision by the producers to make it a voluntary thing and i love the impulse by mike and daniel here and of any future survivor players to deliberately not say the phrase i think there is a huge amount of value to be gained in knowing that there aren't active idols on the other camps although now that i'm saying that they've also changed the rule that if you don't say it and it doesn't become active pre-merge, it's automatically active post-merge. So that may actually now throw a twist into things that I had not been uh, considering during the last couple of minutes here. Yeah, I, I love the impulse of twisting those rules and using it against them uh, and using it for your own like personal benefit. But 
if I, I don't almost want like the well-meaning person who thinks they are locked into abiding by the, those rules to be at that disadvantage compared to someone who is just going out of their way to just ignore them and just being allowed to, to get away with it. I so, kind of do like uh, that. Although I mean, okay, I, I do like that too, but you, you see where I'm going here. Uh, yes, I do. Uh, and I would also say though, even knowing that the idols are going to become automatically valid in the event that we don't say all these phrases by the time the merge rolls around, the information i think is kind of the the vital point here where when you say the phrase everyone then is going to know that you have the idol it's at least an assumption you need to fall back on you cannot begin to count on the people who happen to have these beware advantages on the other beaches keeping them close to the chest there i think if you say the phrase at any of these challenges you essentially have to spend the rest of the game defaulting to the idea that many, if not most, if not all, people in the game know that you now have that idol. And I think I would rather not have an idol than have an idol everyone knows that I have. And so there's a bit of a give and take there where I would rather not say the phrase, not have my vote, wait until the merge for the idol to become active, but you're also then opening the door for the people on the other tribes to do that exact same thing. And suddenly Marianne, yes, has outed herself here in this case, but no one on the blue team has yet at this point. And then you're kind of just guessing in the dark about where the other idols are, but I still think that's probably preferable to an idol that everyone knows you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, So we'll see what becomes of this both on this season in particular and as far as how the rules are going to work on future seasons now uh, that the producers have seen people who are willing to deliberately leave the idols invalidated. Uh, But one other just kind of smaller thing along these lines that I definitely wanted to give Mike in particular credit for here is I don't think he was necessarily never going to say the phrase uh, he got a confessional as right around the time that all of this was happening, where he comments on, okay, I heard Marianne say the phrase for the orange team idol, but because no one said anything from the blue camp, I'm going to continue to keep my mouth shut. And I think that is regardless of whether you want to activate it or not, definitely the move. And we talked it great in great detail about this during 41, uh, when talking through things from like Xander's point of view, where he kept saying it over and over. Uh, and again, he may not have had a choice about that. I really don't know. But once you say it the first time, never, ever, ever say it again until both of the other people have said it first. I uh, would be my rule of thumb there. So uh, really excited to see Mike thinking along similar lines before he'd even said it the first time is I'm going to wait until I know that these other two idols are already in the mix and those phrases are out there because I'm only crying about soccer one time. Uh, That's that's my limit for crying about soccer. Incidentally, Dom, you're European. Do you like soccer? God. Uh, we, We must have had this conversation several times before on here. I I don't object to soccer. I mean, in my, in my cringe teenage uh, 
I, I'm above sports ball phase, and yeah, I, I didn't like soccer. I, I've come around on it. I, I kind of like it for what it is. Um, when the when World Cup in... is going on, are you rooting for or against England? Uh, well, that that's really up for debate on any given day. But uh, <laughs> when I was living in England, uh, you know, I I kind of made it my business to know enough about soccer that I could like bluff my way through conversations about it just to kind of grease the wheels. Um, but now that I now that I don't need to do that, I, I've lost some of that touch. And so, um, you know, I, I have that experience now of like I go to a hairdresser here in Canada, and a lot of them like you, you they often have like soccer up on. Uh, the screens in the salon or whatever and so i have to really summon up all of my reserves to kind of bluff my way through, through that too who which team was it that you had to like pretend to care about when you were in england uh i mean pe- people mostly accepted my like switzerland un style uh, neutrality on these issues but uh you know when the world cup was going on people take it for granted that you're going to be supporting england and if you're not then uh <laughs> there are some some follow-up questions i there. i mean like premier league or whatever who did the people who cared about soccer in your area support i mean that's that that's a complicated question in itself okay. <laughs> to go into all of that there are, yeah, i don't i don't even frankly know at all what i'm talking about here i know there are like a million different soccer leagues so uh thank you for humoring me albeit briefly uh with that response there but yeah uh really liked thus far what i've been seeing out of mike uh as far as that idol is concerned other than perhaps uh misplacing it from time to time but thankfully it seems like that crisis has at least temporarily been averted uh dom another thing that uh we should certainly at least touch on and haven't seen much come of it yet although i'm guessing down the line this will play a bigger role in the premiere episode i think it was in the very opening challenge we have Hi, Lindsay and Drea running off to do one leg of this challenge for each of their respective tribes. They get there and they find out that they're all now going to be involved in this new twist, the amulet advantage, where if all three of them somewhere down the line agree to work together and play it, they get like an extra vote. I think it is if two of the three of them come together uh, after one of them has been eliminated and decide to work together, they get to steal a vote. And then if they are the last person left before anything has happened with these amulets, that uh, it will function as like a full powered hidden immunity idol. What are your thoughts on this amulet advantage? I I haven't thought through the logistics very well, but I love this concept of like a capture the flag style thing where you have to hunt down the other people who are, tied up in this with you and if you succeed then you get to like poach their advantage or upgrade yours um very kind of reminiscent of the legacy advantage in a way right although actually that was kind of the opposite and we just saw sarah manage to like mindfuck sierra into <laughs> running into her anyway uh but yeah there's like a reverse legacy advantage almost i i, I like it in in theory i just don't know how well it's going to work out in practice yet uh, so i am um... Very curious to see how all of this plays out. I like it a lot in theory. And the thing it actually reminded me of, to some extent, is the Secret Pairs twist from Survivor Maryland All-Stars, which, by the way, 
if you haven't watched Survivor Maryland All Stars, go to YouTube, do yourself a favor. Uh, one of the, truly the finest Survivor seasons, CBS globally, otherwise, uh, that you will ever encounter. Uh, and we don't need to get into the nitty gritty details on how all of that works, but that is the thought that came to mind for me is I love having this kind of extra incentive for people along the way that is going to, I would imagine once we get deeper into the game, into like a really crucial time in the game, uh, relatively early post merge could potentially swing things pretty significantly for any of these three people. So, uh, I think temporarily kind of putting a pin in the amulet advantage. I don't expect it to be relevant in these next few weeks, but I'm very excited to see what is ultimately going to become of all of this. So actually while we're on it, uh, way too early prediction time here, Dom, what is the ultimate prize going to be for this amulet advantage? Are you on the three of them are going to come together? Are you on two of them are going to come together? Or are you on, one person is going to get a full powered idol out of this by being pretty cutthroat. Soul survivor. Let's go. Yes. I, I think that is the the smart money as things stand right now, but we'll see. I, I wouldn't be blown away by any stretch. If two of the three of them end up coming together, if conditions align like perfectly where steel, you know, they hit it off right away and then stealing a vote could potentially swing things in their favor. Uh, I, I will be very surprised if it's the three of them all working together to collectively get one extra vote. Uh, I don't know how likely that is to uh, to be the case there. Uh, so we'll see. But I w want to just say, to close up on the amulet advantage, I really like that the producers are willing to put something in, not entirely unlike the legacy advantage, that they know is not going to pay off for a long time and just take it for granted that a huge percentage of the audience, whenever this becomes relevant, is not going to remember that this happened in the premiere and isn't going to remember how it works. I'm guessing we're going to be leaning pretty heavily uh, on some flashbacks here to explain all of this. And I'm very happy that the producers are willing to have that kind of faith in the audience to just roll with it. I don't think the casual fan is going to be outraged by any stretch whenever this comes up and they don't remember it. I, I, I'm very happy to see this sort of thing uh, become a new kind of part of the game. So uh, looking forward to seeing whatever ends up becoming of all of that. Dom, uh, what else? I, I feel like enough has happened that surely we're missing out on some sort of game-related mechanics uh, worth commenting on, but nothing is coming to mind at the moment for me. Uh, one other thing, though, I suppose before we uh, get into this kind of more player-specific discussion in the form of a must-lose draft is... One thing I really, really liked uh, and hopefully continues to be a priority is the fact that, at least in the premiere, and obviously this was not the case in the most recent episode where the entire Blue Tribe combined for zero confessionals, uh, which may be a survivor first, I'm not 100% sure on that, but it certainly hasn't happened too frequently. Uh, there were plenty of extenuating circumstances in this most recent week where 
understandable why uh, plenty of people had to take a back seat when Tribal Council and the challenge were going to take up so much time. But loved, loved, loved that in our premiere, which I will grant, you know, it's a two hour premiere and we got to establish who all these people are in the first place. But every single person in the game had at least two confessionals in the season premiere. And that's one of my favorite developments in a long time on Survivor. By contrast, if you look at the uh, Australian Survivor confessional chart for the season, it is just, I, I mean, the last two seasons of Australian Survivor have also made for, for grim reading and viewing in that regard. But this one really <laughs> just takes it to a whole uh, different level. And I don't know, I always feel like it must be a bit when someone says these days that Australian Survivor is the example of what Survivor should be and CPS should be taking their cues from that way. It, it, in, in practice, it's everything that people dislike about or claim to dislike about uh, US Survivor just dialed up to the, the, the most egregious extreme possible. And, uh, you know, for, for as many quibbles as I have with just, you know, the direction of the show these days or like 41 in particular or some of these new twists or, or what have you, it is night and day when you look at uh, the, the, the grass is not always green on the other side, I guess is the way I would put it. So I think it is largely because for a couple years in there, Australian Survivor was so much better than U.S. Survivor for my money. The first two seasons I watched, I think season uh, three and four, although I know the numbering on Australian Survivor is uh, a little sketchy. I uh, loved so much about both of those seasons. And then season five was this all-star season that I was so eagerly anticipating and looking forward to much more so than I ever had, at least in recent memory, for a U.S. Survivor season. And I think that is where this kind of new era of Australian Survivor started, where I truly cannot, to this day, wrap my mind around how this is the case. But, like, I was so amped up for that season of so many legends that I was looking forward to seeing and hearing from again. I literally did not make it to the swap of that all-star season of this franchise that I had been loving everything I had ever seen from because it took such a hard turn. And yeah, uh, from what I have heard, I've never gone back to Australian Survivor, but from what I have heard uh, and credit to at Rob's fact checker for this, a, a stat I saw on Twitter that just blew my mind, but it seems worth sharing here in the context of this discussion, apparently on this newest season of Australian survivor. And I doubt that this is the case uh, at this point, because I'm guessing a couple more episodes have aired uh, since this stat crossed my timeline. But when they merged with 13 people on this most recent season of survivor of Australian survivor for the next Eight episodes, <laughs> two of those 13 people had half of the confessionals over the course of eight episodes. Uh, yeah. And the, the twists just get like crazier and crazier and more game breaking. And I think you put it perfectly that like it seems like it is now just the embodiment of what people dislike about U.S. Survivor. But enough, we don't need to bag on uh Australian survivor for no real reason. I do still continue to love Jonathan LaPaglia. I loved seeing him uh, hanging out with Jeff for whatever reason. Uh, yeah. What's up with that? I don't <laughs> know, I, but I like it. I like it's, it's 
it's uh the what what was the old Marvel meme like the bravest crossover since whatever I don't not not is, necessarily the most unexpected. No, it's just dudes rocking, okay? There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I would love and am rooting very hard for Australian Survivor to return to its former glory. But yeah, I've been hard out on that for uh, a long time at this point. All right, uh, Dom, let's, I think, dive in. Let's Let's talk a bit more about these players in particular. And I think the way that we should do that at this point is in the form of a must-lose draft. Uh, one of our favorite formats that we've been doing for quite... I don't even remember when we started doing these, but always a lot of fun. And the way that this works is instead of looking to draft the eventual winner, we are going to be taking people off the board that we think are the least likely to win. So whoever... And we'll go through the whole cast. And so whoever ends up with the eventual winner on their team is the loser of this draft. I, generally speaking, although I don't think this is the case in modern, at least modern meeting 41 and beyond uh, kind of times here, it used to be a situation far more often than not, where there would be like, after the first couple episodes, okay, we have maybe three or four real winner candidates if we are really <laughs> generous and optimistic uh, and most people are pretty clearly drawing dead. Uh, times have certainly changed, and I think the edit zone is not even necessary here uh, after what we saw go down in 41, uh, where I am certainly at the point where I do not feel like I have any real kind of like super strong leans as far as who is in incredibly good shape, who is in incredibly bad shape. Uh, but... Regardless, I still think the must-lose draft uh, is an interesting format, and I I think hopefully people understand uh, the idea of how this works, even though I'm kind of stumbling through this explanation here. But Dom, with the intention of drafting someone who will not win this season, would you like to go first or would you like to go second? Uh, I will go first, and as much as it pains me to say, I'm going to take my man Daniel. Okay, Daniel is going to be number one off the board in the must-lose draft. Did you feel like this most recent week was just too devastating to overcome for him? Was it perhaps him saying to the camera and making air, here's why I'm not going to win Survivor? I mean, hey, we stand a self-aware king who knows why he's going to lose Survivor, but if he's going to lose Survivor, then that's all we care about for the sake of this draft. Okay, uh, I, I, I feel like Daniel... He certainly wouldn't have been my first pick. I still think there is... Okay, well, let, let's find out who your first pick's going to be. Let's well, go. I, I, I do want to say, I think there is always a shot for the person who it looks like is getting off to a very bad start uh, and then is not actually voted out. Uh, I, I do think Daniel still has time to rebound here. So let's indeed find out who my first pick is going to be. Man, do I hate to do it. I really hate to do it. But, like, as much as I like this person, I think I have to do the most mental gymnastics to talk myself into circumstances where Marianne is our winner. I, I think she will continue to be a big character for as long as she's out there and may have 
uh, a great deal of influence, perhaps somewhere down the line, especially if that idol ends up getting activated. This might be the kind of cast that uh, would be more willing to, at final tribal council, reward the person who was just so excited to be out there and played such a big game, uh, I would imagine, in any circumstance where she's facing a jury. But I think I really have to do some serious uh, talking myself into the idea of Marianne actually being the eventual winner, as much as I do feel like uh, she is bringing to the show just as a character. Yeah, I think I will follow up on that by... I, so I, I looked over the list, and this person's name escaped me at first. Uh, but I think had I realized they were on the board, they would have been my number one pick ahead of Daniel. So glad that they are still there. And that's going to be Roxroy, who I feel like his his tribe, we've seen basically nothing of so far yet. And what little we do see mostly consists of people getting very, very pissed about his uh, leadership style or lack thereof. So I, I think uh, I'm, I'm pretty safe there. Okay, yeah, the the so-and-so is being a boss around camp early into a season is generally not, uh, uh, like being bossy around camp, generally not the place to be. I think uh, Roxroy, a logical pick. Although, the fact that we have not seen the blue team as much as we've seen the other two teams, I think, first of all, comes down to they haven't been to Tribal Council in the last couple of weeks. And secondly... I remember a time not too long ago where we weren't seeing virtually anything of the blue team. And then they went on to define the entire end game. So uh, I, I am personally not reading a ton into that. But yeah, uh, rocks were, I think, a, a pretty defensible pick in this moment. Uh, huh. I think I am now going to gamble. I'm going to gamble pretty hard because... I don't see this person going out too soon, but I also just don't know how they're going to be able to make it cleanly through to an end game in any circumstance where they're a legitimate threat to win other than by brute force. And I think I'm going to take Jonathan off the board and... A big piece of that is what we just saw in this most recent immunity challenge, which is Jonathan pretty much single-handedly winning this one for his tribe while everyone else combined was unable to do what he was able to physically do. I think that's just going to be impossible for people to ignore along the way. I think we could certainly be in for a long series of Jonathan and Omer, the odd couple, uh going pretty deep together in the game. I just, at this point, think it's probably in those sorts of timelines going to end in Omer's favor rather than Jonathan's. Yeah, I think uh, Jonathan would be a challenge MVP on whatever tribe he was on, on whatever season he was on. But this season in particular, where it really feels like there is a surprising lack of any real uh, rivals in terms of challenge strength. Like, it's not like all of the three tribes each have their own... Uh, jonathan or joe style golden boy or what have you is is just jonathan kind of literally carrying the entire team on his back by himself there right exactly uh and incidentally that's been another thing that is certainly not lost on the casuals that i've talked to is just the kind of physical makeup of the people 
on this season is something that is certainly registering with, I would imagine, the average kind of person on the street. And I don't think it's a bad thing by any stretch, by the way, that we don't have a bunch of muscle bros and bikini babes or whatever. Uh, But Jonathan, I think, is probably going to be the person to pay the price for standing out to a much greater extent than I think he would in virtually any other season before this. Mm -hmm. All right. uh, Back over to you. Okay, let's see. I will take... Hmm. I kind of feel it gets a lot tougher from here. Uh, I almost want to say Chanel after this episode. I don't know how easy that is going to be to recover from either. But I feel like even though Chanel, like from what we saw, made a, a kind of pretty big unforced error, it feels like most of the backlash there is going to end up on Daniel instead. So uh, not too concerned about that for the time being i guess then give me give me mike actually i i have really loved mike as a character so far and we've seen him be involved in a lot of like these little subplots that have been uh going on but i i don't know just in terms of age difference and then uh he he does seem like more of a teddy bear than like the actual like mike omentrout style personality that he gives off at first (laughs) but uh I, i don't know it just seems like he is kind of off doing his own thing and doesn't really have much support behind him at this point, especially now that Jenny's gone and is going to struggle to convert once we get to the more open game of the merge, I think. Okay, I see where you're coming from, but I will say Mike would have stayed on the board for quite a while uh, for me. So uh, with that, well, since I don't think I can reliably count on you skipping this person again, I think I am going to take Chanel. Uh, as much as I do feel like there are reasons to believe that Chanel could easily turn things around and certainly a swap could happen. Although, I do, do you think we're going to get a swap this season or is it going to be like 41? I really don't know at this point. Uh, we might get one of these like very brief swaps where it's uh, you swap and then it's maybe two votes and then it's a merge, which I never quite know how I feel about. Yeah, I think I'm at the I think I would probably lean that we're not going to swap, although obviously very, very ready to be wrong about that. Just considering the frequency with which we do swap on Survivor over the last at least 10 years. Uh, If there were ever a time where I were comfortable saying we probably won't swap, it would be this season. So stay tuned next week when we show up and everyone drops their buffs. But uh, Chanel. Maybe some recency bias just because this last round in particular seemed pretty rough there. But the thing that really concerns me for Chanel is not her ability in general as a survivor player. It is what what went down with Omer uh, at Shipwheel Island and the reaction I am presuming he is going to have when he gets the bad news that he lost his vote and is going to have a very hard time, I would imagine, trusting Chanel with anything too meaningful going forward. I suspect word is going to spread uh, along those lines. So that, uh, I think, is pretty troubling for me. Although, again, difficult to count out someone like Chanel, who, as I believe, uh, is like a big, big Survivor fan and certainly seems to, in general, have... Uh, plenty of talent for the game just by virtue of being in that dream swing vote role in the first place so nervous about the pick but i want to get her on my team before you take her okay 
Let's see. At this point, it just feels like throwing darts at a board. Um, give me... Give me Swati. I think that I didn't... I, so I didn't realize until looking over the Wikipedia page earlier that she is 19. Like, she's the youngest person on the cast uh, in... You know, she was the only person in her teens rather than her, her 20s or above. And this is a little bit of an older cast on the whole. And not too many, like, early 20s people, uh, you know, uh, changing the vibe in their own way. So I think that age difference does matter. And I think being, you know, the, the will walls of the world or whatever, I think are always capped in how well they can perform, even though most of them do actually impress me when they go out there, you know, which I had that much poise at their age. But... Uh, for that reason alone, given that we've seen, again, basically nothing of that tribe at this point, uh, I'm going to take uh, Swati off the board there. Swati was going to be my next pick for that exact reason. Uh, I, too, recently found out that she's 19, and the fact that we just found that out and are kind of surprised to learn it may be kind of a counter-argument to what we're saying in and of itself here. Uh, but, yeah, I am always going to be concerned about any teenager having much win equity uh on survivor there and furthermore uh what little we did get to see of the blue tribe going back to uh either the premiere episode two when drea comes over and tries to form the women's alliance or at least throws out the idea of hey what if we came together and uh me drea uh and then you and you being swathy and then tori all voted together to to see swathy then immediately as soon as drea left Sedatory, well, hey, how about we just take out Drea? Uh, that gives me a bit of pause as well about feeling super pumped about Swathi as uh, a winner candidate there, especially when that episode does not end in Drea being eliminated. So, hmm, back on me. I have a few people I know I'm not taking next. So... I'm kind of torn between a couple here. I think I am sadly at this point going to be taking Lydia off the board. Although we'll say Lydia is the next Dominic. And I'm sure you saw this take coming in the very short list. As far as my money is concerned of survivors who are stellar on Twitter. Uh, over the years, I have been very, very reluctant to give out this sort of compliment to pretty much anyone we have seen. Uh, I believe Sophie was the first back in our first season we covered during South Pacific. Uh, you have given me a hard time for the extent to which I have uh, talked up Gabby's abilities uh, with the Twitters and Lydia, I would say, is definitely in that mold for me already. A survivor Twitter Mount Rushmore, as far as I'm concerned. I think Lydia is fantastic on Twitter. Yeah, there is a uh, just generational gap there where I feel like just completely confused and bamboozled by the, uh, the I guess, would she be Gen Z uh, brand of humor? Yes, I, I, I think she self-identifies as kind of a stereotypical Gen Z person, but I, I guess so am I, Dom. I'm just so young at heart that I, I too, am a Gen Z. I, I That's have, canon. Uh, I am officially Gen Z. Uh, sure you are. Uh, Gen Gen X, Colin versus Gen Z, Colin, coming soon to a, a season near you. I am not um, Gen X, for the record. I am I am a millennial 
and not even a geriatric millennial. Thank you very much. I I, uh, I have dipped a toe in TikTok from time to time, and I, I am scared by what I see. I, so that, that whole generation is, you know, uh, taking being online to whole new frontiers, and uh, that, that has well and truly passed me by at this point. At the very uh, beginning of the pandemic, I downloaded TikTok, made it a few days, and said, well, that's enough of that. I don't think this is for me. Which is not something that anyone else has ever done, as far as I can tell. Most people, they, they view like two TikToks and now they're hooked for life. And they, their entire, the whole way they process reality is just a, a stream of TikToks, uh, one after the other. I guess you are of the Vine generation, uh, yes? I loved Vine back when Vine was a thing. One of the most tragic, uh, cancellations is the wrong word for sure, <laughs> but Vine was the truest form of internet comedy. Yeah, maybe it's just a generational thing. You have aged out of being able to, to process things in the form of 15-second uh, videos. Six-second videos. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. Vine didn't well, play well, around. Maybe... Vine, Vine said, show up, show off, get out. Which, uh, honestly, nothing but respect for that. Uh, anyway, returning to our task here, I'm going to take uh, Tori off the board. I think that... Like what we saw in specifically that first episode was someone who like had a lot of poise, seemed to be pretty skilled socially, but was already getting themselves in a bit of hot water and overreaching and having to like uh, like work back things that they'd done. And uh, even though the game is more of a sprint now uh, than a marathon compared to where it has been in the past, I don't know. It feels like she could easily get herself in trouble and be, you know, be, be juggling too many balls at once. I totally agree. I think Tori is probably uh, someone who, I don't want to say was lucky to stay on the board this long, but I'm guessing there are listeners out there wondering why Tori hadn't been picked yet. Although I, I personally will not be floored if this turns around uh, in her favor again. The being made to look like you're off to a very bad start, but surviving it and learning from it and overcoming narrative is something we've seen plenty of in the past there. So uh, Tori now off the board, we're down to five people who I had initially just written these players down tribe by tribe. Uh, so the five names still left up here in tribe by tribe order are Romeo, Drea, Hi, Omer, and Lindsay. I think at this point I'm going to take Drea off the board, although, again, uh, fearful that this could come back, much like I just said about Tori, to the idea of it looked like she was potentially in some jeopardy if that blue team ended up going to another vote, but uh, that obviously has not yet happened, uh, and I'm willing to, as things stand now, uh, have at least a reasonable enough amount of faith in Drea as a player. It seems like people are responding at least fairly well to her, but I think given the other names still left up on the board here, this is a pretty easy pick for me. Mm -hmm. All right. So I think I'm just going to take Romeo next on the grounds that I know the least about him out of everyone. And 41 showed us that you can effectively ignore an entire tribe for uh, a giant swathe of the game, and that will have basically no bearing whatsoever on their eventual placements. But even with that in mind, uh, you know, if I have to go based on first impressions, I have less of a first impression of 
anyone on Romeo's team, and so he's going to join some of his uh, tribe mates there on my list. Okay, I think that's very fair. I have been loving everything I have seen out of Romeo as a player. Uh, the one concern I had just in watching back some of this to prep for these podcasts, is, for this singular podcast, is in that premiere episode, it did seem like Romeo was the one kind of voice for the idea of, oh, I want to keep Zach, because uh, Zach is going to be a number for me. And then to not get his way there, uh, at least potentially a concern for me. But Romeo the player, I think I might have more faith in than just about anyone else based on what I've seen to this point, and certainly not deducting virtually anything from his winning chances by virtue of the fact that he's been pretty invisible over these last couple of weeks. I don't think that's a, a difference maker virtually at all there. Uh, but we, you know, we are just down to the nitty gritty here. So I get uh, why Romeo would come off the board on to your team there. Dom, I am now torn between high Omer and Lindsay. I think I am going to go for high. Uh, and incidentally, high has, because of the, kind of line that he drew in the sand during that rocks discussion probably become if not my number one certainly high high no pun intended here sorry high on the list for me of favorite survivors not just on this season but in recent years uh, i i loved That's... everything i saw out of high during that uh most recent tribal council where his back was really up against the wall that that's kind of a lot i mean i it was funny how even after really drawing a firm line in the sand, he was a little apologetic about it, being like, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Good. Uh, to That's Jenny. Good. It, well, I, I kind of wanted to see him just be like, yeah, I'm ready for Jenny. Love it or leave it. If you want to draw rocks, you can draw rocks. But I guess that's not, uh, you know, in his nature. So I was thinking to myself as we were on like commercial break between what's going to happen with the vote and the rocks or whatever. I guess we knew we were about to have the discussion about whether or not to go to rocks. Uh, I was thinking to myself, this is definitely not what someone should do, but I know myself well enough to know that if I were in high spot, what I would do is before Daniel even has a chance to talk, I would say, look, I'm sure you got a bunch going through your mind right now. I'm going to make this real easy. You can either vote out Jenny or we're going to rocks. That's the end of the discussion. It's up to you. Uh, and I love that High was much more tactful than I certainly would have been in that moment, mm -hmm. while still maintaining the same kind of general philosophy. Yeah. Uh, so I have to pay between Omer and Lindsay, and I'm going to take Omer here as much as it pains me to do so, just because... Um, you know, that that shirt, as I mentioned, is so iconic and so fabulous that if I was out there, I would be jealous of having to look at that and not be wearing it myself the whole time. And I would <laughs> want to vote Omar out on those grounds alone. So, uh, you know, for, for as much as people are uh, going to vote him out in this case because they're jealous and he has style that they could never possibly aspire to, I, I fear that may be his fate. And so as a result, going to have to, to pose him up here. You, you would be like... Angelina with Natalie's jacket voting Omer out and then begging for his shirt. Absolutely. Or at least send me like an Etsy link or something. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I mean, I'm sure someone out there on Reddit or whatever has found out where to buy the Omer emu shirt. Uh, probably the most 
sought after reality TV animal related apparel since the bear shirt on BB 15. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Yeah. I-, I tweeted that I loved Omar's uh, ostrich shirt. And then like five days later, out of the blue, I just got a push notification of someone saying to me on Twitter, it's an emu. And I had no recollection of what that was about at that point. So that, that really <laughs> took me off guard, but uh, eventually the context became clear. Yes. Uh, and so that leaves me here with Lindsay and, I, too, I think if facing the choice between Omer and Lindsay, who are my top two as things stand right now, I uh, probably would have made the same call you did in picking Omer to lose ahead of her. I have loved pretty much everything I've seen out of both of these two, and I don't think this is going to be a super meaningful thing in very many timelines, but one thing probably worth at least flagging up as not nothing. And I am certainly not saying that this is going to necessarily play a major or minor role, but I do think it is worth mentioning that at the time that they are filming this, no one on the cast knows that a woman just won season 41 and are probably nervous that a man just won for the seventh or eighth time or whatever it is in a row. And so I would say that to a very, very negligible extent, but not zero, that probably does give uh, the women a slightly better chance than they they would have. And I'm not, I mean, I'm being serious about this. this, I, this so, I mean, I mean so this is how you solve that gender imbalance. You embargo like six seasons <laughs> in a row so that all of them can, can have the same thought process weighing on their minds at the end of the game. And then I guess when you finally unveil all of them at once, the next season, the women are going to have an uphill struggle there. But for now, this maybe is a good solution. We'll see. Uh, and again, probably nothing, but it's probably not going to be a difference maker. It's not going to swing the outcome, but I don't think it's nothing to acknowledge that as far as they know, it's still been many, many years since a woman has won. Uh, and Lindsay, incidentally, jumping off the page for me preseason, the only person that I had any kind of idea about before the season began. I went in totally cold, uh, other than I accidentally had a, like, meet so-and-so video cross my timeline, and I saw it was Lindsay. She was in her early 30s, and she's from New Jersey. And so I said... For whatever reason, already, obviously, no, but I said, for whatever reason, it truly seems like New Jersey is just kind of overpowered as uh, a state within the Survivor franchise between Tony, Michelle, Natalie, all winning their seasons and then forming the final three of the all winner season. As soon as I saw that Lindsay was from New Jersey and knowing nothing about anyone else in the entire cast, uh, I did say to myself, all right, I think I might just make this girl my winner pick now. Uh, So Lindsay, happy to see off to a good start there. And by the way, Dom, it seems like you are not acknowledging the New Jersey factor for Mike as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, I bet and you now, regret that pick. Now I need to know which states have the worst uh, hit rate over 42 seasons. I'm going to guess California is up there, actually, just because of the the sheer quantity of, of magnets that were, you know, deposited as flotsam and jetsam onto our screens in like the, the, the tens and the twenties uh, in that middle era. Um, but outside of that, I, uh, I, I wonder which states are 
fly, uh, flying under the radar, excuse me, in terms of just how bad they are at survival. That's a, a definitely a good question that I'm sure someone out there could pull some data on. I do certainly know that uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, has been holding it down in the form of both Denise Stapley oh, yeah. and Sarah Lucina uh, winning their <laughs> seasons. So uh, Iowans, potentially others to be on the lookout for in future. I don't know if we have any Iowans uh, on this season, but either way, I'm all, whenever I see New Jersey, I'm always going to bump that person up a little bit for whatever reason. Uh, so there we have it, Dom. Uh, to quickly just roll back through the teams for the must-lose draft. So again, the idea is avoid having the eventual winner on your team. Dom, you ended up with Daniel, Roxroy, Mike, Swathy, Tori, Romeo, and Omer. I ended up with Marianne, Jonathan, Chanel, Lydia, Drea, Hi, and Lindsay. So we'll see what becomes of all of this. And by the way, I don't remember which podcast it was that we did this in, but there was somewhere along the way. It may have been in the season 41 finale review podcast. I'm not sure. Uh, we did just know the names, ages, locations, and faces of the people who were going to be on season 42. And much like we did for 41, where I very correctly made Erica my face only winner pick in long before we had any kind of like actual preseason content. Uh, we, we made super speculative calls. I believe it is the case just for the official record to restate it. So that if any of this comes in, we also had that one first as well. Uh, Dom, you, based on like looks and names alone, had high as your winner pick, uh, which I think has aged pretty well here to this point. And I had Drea as my winner pick. And then this time around, we also had a random number generator pick a winner just because... As far as I'm concerned, so much of preseason content is truly just spinning the big roulette wheel in honor of Jenny, uh, where there's virtually nothing that you can actually read into a solid 75% of the contestants. You can, you can probably get some people who are jumping off the page as like drawing dead. Uh, but the computer chose Daniel as its winner pick. So we will see if any of those end up hitting there. But Dom, for this week, anything else that you wanted to get to? Uh, no, I'm good. I believe I am fresh out as well. Uh, thank you guys who have made it this far into the podcast. Hopefully uh, back again next week and very regularly over the course of this season, which I, as far as I'm concerned, is off to an excellent start here. We are over on Twitter. He is at Dom HRV. I am at Colin Stone. Uh, making our way through Gabon over, by the way, on the patron feed, uh, patreon.com slash Dom and Colin, and not just Gabon. We have a ton at this point of classic Survivor and other reality TV episode-by-episode uh, episode rewatches. We've done Heroes versus Villains over there, Guatemala, Fiji, China, uh, a couple Big Brother seasons, a couple of seasons of the old school version of The Mole, plenty of other just kind of random one-off podcasts over there. So if you would like some bonus content, patreon.com slash dom and colin uh but i believe that is going to do it for us here this week we will talk to you soon take care everybody